Sharai, the podcast co-hosted by the Governance Program at the Aga Khan University and the International Society for Islamic Legal Studies in cooperation with the University of Bern. Welcome to a new episode of Shari, the podcast. My name is Serena Tolino. And my name is Gianluca Parolin. In this episode, we are delighted to have as a guest David Drennan from Charles Sturt University. Welcome, David. Thank you for having me. Welcome, David. Uh, what do you like to do in your free time? So in my free time, to, to be honest, I'm a big martial arts and martial art action movie nerd. So I started training various martial arts in my youth and Although I'm somewhat lazy these days, that interest has continued through. So I have quite a big collection of movies and that type of thing. So, yeah. so you switch from the practice to watching. <laughs> uh, yeah, a bit of both. Just a bit lazy these days. To be honest, I probably play Minecraft and Fortnite with my kids more than training. So yeah, but that's semi-retired, as I like to call myself. And um, so you are working on your PhD at the moment, right? Yeah, so I'm a PhD candidate at Charles Sturt University, which uh, I'm based in Sydney, Australia, although I'm originally from Scotland, actually, although I don't have the accent anymore. So, you know, um, I was previously enrolled in a PhD before this and had to withdraw, and then I've re-enrolled in the last year or so, slightly different topics. So my research is kind of macro level, focusing on that kind of dialectic relationship between continuity and change in Islamic law and religious authority. So my previous research was more to do with what I call the craft of fatwas, how fatwas were constructed and actually expressed, and looking at the dynamic between the inherited legal corpus, you know, that kind of textual heritage site, and this social reality being addressed. My previous research was on Muslim minority communities largely because it's quite a dynamic area where there's a lot of issues and responses taking place. But I was also looking at the legal theory and the principles behind that. But my research has changed in the last year, so since I re-enrolled, slightly different topic. My main interest now is in the Maliki school and the, the latter-day manifestation of the school in particular. So focusing, you know, maybe from around the 1700s, mid-1700s until the present, focusing primarily on Mauritania and the northwestern Sahara region in particular. So that includes not only the fiqh side of things, but also the usul al-fiqh and also the qawad fiqhiyah, you know, the legal maxim principles and how they all interact together to make a kind of holistic school, I guess. So one of my aims is to not only highlight these, you know, incredible texts and scholars from that region that are understudied, because um, I feel they've kind of been neglected in academic discourse until recently, I guess, because of the whole core versus periphery type engagement that the major focus has been, you know, the, the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire and modernism and so forth from the kind of more central Arab lands. So I'm trying to highlight that actually dynamic uh, intellectual contributions were taking place in elsewhere. So my work currently, I'm looking at biographical dictionaries, local written histories, some manuscript archives, and the actual written output of select scholars. And, you know, This paper is part of that wider research. And you mentioned the word, the tension between center and periphery. And indeed, while uh, reading your abstract, I was thinking about that. Mauritania is rather, and this is really unlucky, and Northwest Africa, but also Eastern Africa, I worked for a bit on Africa, they have really a marginal position within um, Islamic study. Not only Islamic legal studies, I would say, Islamic studies in general. So I wonder how did you, I mean, how did you come to the idea of work on that? This is yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, so like I said, my previous research was focusing on uh, the crafting of fatwas for Muslim minorities. And one of the main scholars there, Sheikh Abdullah Bimbaya, who's of Mauritanian 
background anyway. And it was through kind of looking at his works and so forth that actually got me interested into this wider region and history. And then, you know, looking at some of the other texts and scholars from that region as well. And then, you know, came across a number of really important works that um, discussed, you know, kind of like the Hajj pilgrimage journeys that some of these scholars took and they stopped off in different cities, you know, Alexandria, Tunis, you know, all the way through. And the impact that some of these scholars had was actually really incredible. Like some of the senior scholars from Al-Azhar, for example, were saying, you know, you know, the study of the Arabic language was dead until so-and-so appeared and revived it for us and so on, you know, th these type of things. And that got me really interested in looking at, well, what was the actual scholastic and textual output of some of these scholars? You know, I'm mostly, like I said, focusing on 1800s to early 1900s for my research when travel was easier, obviously. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, there's a huge corpus of texts and things that no one has really looked at there. And that's what I'm interested in. And in Mauritanian uh, jurisprudence, you are particularly working and will be presenting at the conference on a very important author that has been sort of rediscovered in in the 19th century. But you're you're telling us a different story about that from the Mauritanian perspective. Exactly, that's right. So my paper is basically attempting to trace the kind of reception history of Shatabi's Muafakat, which is he's famous uh, for writing, as it's found in Mauritania, I guess. You know, so Shatabi died 1388 of the Common Era. The, the well-known story is Muhammad Abdu discovered it in Tunis around 1884-1885, which is a 500-year gap. And that has always vexed me as a historian <laughs> for, since I read about it even in undergrad, you know, what happened during that time. And it's something that I've always wanted to try and find out about, but been unable to until recently. Um, so my paper is looking at what I call a, a preceding and parallel transmission of his work and his ideas compared to that kind of standard narrative. So it focuses on, I mean, th this particular paper will focus on the also text of uh, one of Shatabi's most well-known students, Abu Bakr ibn Asim, who died 1426. He was the, the Qadi al-Jama'a, so the chief Qadi of, of Andalus in his time. And he wrote a number of texts across the whole area of fiqh and usul and, and so forth. Um, and so I'll be looking at that text and how it, it's been received in Mauritania because it has a specific section of Maqasid that is largely taken from Shatabi's obviously much larger work. And I'm tracing the commentaries on that text and uh, how they interact with Shatabi's text. So I've traced commentaries. So probably at this stage, I'm estimating pre-1800 that quote Shatabi verbatim from the Muafakat in a number of sections and other sections, they summarize his, his positions and output. And this is later picked up in the mid late 1800s. So pre the, the modern printing of, of Muafakat in Tunis and further developed from there. And then there's a parallel transmission. Once they get the printed copy, then they're making their own abridgments, their own commentaries on those abridgments and so forth. So there's like a parallel transmission of his work, his ideas within that Maliki kind of world, if you like, somewhat disconnected from the revivalist and modernist approach to things. So that's what I want to bring to light, kind of um, give a more holistic picture of his influence and his reception, if you like. And so that sort of like is uh, fascinating because then it begs questions about the other competing history of the more, let's say, let's call it the Tunisian side of the story and with Tahir ibn Ashur and so forth. So how does that then, how does Two, these two competing uh, stories or traditions uh, yeah. interact? I, I mean, my, my current research kind of 
ends around 1930. So it's kind of just before Ibn Ashur publishes his text, which was in the late late 40s, if I recall correctly. But I mean, you know, it begs the question that they, they printed in uh, Muafakat in Tunis in around 1884. So it came from somewhere. They had it. They were using it. For what purpose? You know, um, no one has really interrogated this question in the first place. They just got, you know, our, our textbooks on Islamic legal history jump from Shatabi to Abdu and on. So I'm interested in trying to peel back that discourse uh, and find out what happened. Of course, my focus is mostly Mauritania, but uh, a number of the scholars I, I, I am looking at, they did visit Tunis when they were doing their pilgrimage journey and so forth. So there was obviously interaction taking place. It's just about actually what evidence there is and so forth. Not quite there yet. <laughs> well, something to be looking forward to. Um, and how does that interest, if you have already encountered that, how does that interest with the Maqasid then in, you know, interlocks with the rest of the Muwafaqat in the Mauritanian uh, right. works? Um, so, so one of the things that's really interesting to me thus far, I mean, bearing in mind I'm only in the second year of my PhD on this topic, is that the, the abridgments of Muwafaqat that were done uh, around the late 1800s, early 1900s, so we're talking before 1910. So Abdul's students did, a, did a, a, another printed edition of Muwafaqat in the mid-1920s, so it's still before that time. Um, so these works tend to focus on the Muwafaqat holistically, so they don't just focus on the Maqasid part. They focus on the other sections, which are to do with evidences. And of course, there's a large section on Ijtihad and so forth. So they deal with it as a much more holistic text rather than extracting parts of it and not others. And from my reading thus far, they, they integrate things much more widely into the wider kind of Usulafiq corpus. Um, so you, Shatabis uh, being discussed alongside Al-Qarafi and so on, as, uh, other scholars from within that Maliki kind of worldview, if you like. And, and there's a dialectic happening there, you know, as part of their how they engage their heritage, I guess. And that's what's interesting to me. So he's not, although he's considered in all the biographical dictionaries to be this giant scholar and, you know, incredible, etc. They're engaging with him, but not always taking what he says kind of as gospel, if you like. They may agree, they may disagree, they may modify, you know, it's part of that process, isn't it? Thank you a lot, David, for uh, these fascinating insights into your paper. And now we are looking about even more about it. Thank you. Thank you, David. That's okay. You're welcome.